0: Turn, if you would, please, to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus was written by the great Moses, probably about 1400 years before the advent of our Savior. Simply means the way out. Exodus, the way out. And as Israel was redeemed from that iron furnace of affliction called Egypt, God did indeed lead them out. And as they traveled, they ultimately came to the base of Mount Sinai, where God would, by the disposition of angels, give the law of God to his people. And among other things, they would find out that their God was holy he would find out, they would find out a new name for God. They would make a covenant with Him. But while they were at Mount Sinai, they received the law, and that's what we want to look at here. Not all of it, but just beginning, please, at verse 8. <clears throat> Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor, and do all thy work, But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter, thy manservant nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. And here's the reasoning in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth The sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love Thee tonight, Lord, with our imperfect love. And how can we thank Thee for Thy condescending love toward us as guilty and imperfect sinners? And Lord, now as we study this vital issue tonight, help us as we pray for every subject of life that we would have the mind of Christ on this issue, that we would not follow the the culture, the norms, the expedient thing, the popular thing, but what would please our Savior. Lead us, Lord, to that truth and to that path, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. World War II brought many changes to our nation. No doubt many of you have heard of Rosie the Riveter. There was an egalitarian movement afoot before World War II that, you know, women should do what men do, but World War II brought it to a crucial point because Most of the able-bodied men were tied up in the war effort. Women, by the droves, had to leave their kitchen, their home, their hearth, and go into the labor market. And that term called Rosie the Riveter came into being. The problem is that after World War II and when the peace was won, she didn't go back home. And many of them kept that mindset of earning money of her own and dressing and acting like a man and those kinds of things. But something else happened that was perhaps just as serious in my thinking as what happened to help fracture the home of America. And that's that the observance of the Lord's Day became a byword. When I was a child, I was raised in the Midwest, in South Dakota, you couldn't go shopping on Sunday if you wanted to, because there were no stores open. Nothing was open. If you were a lost person and you cared nothing about the Lord or the Lord's Day, you could not go shopping. And on the Lord's Day, families would get together. People would go to church. Many people went to church. But after World War II, that went into rapid decline. Until today, at this present hour, most Americans could not call it the Lord's Day. Most Americans would call it my day. It's no longer the Lord's day. Now, why do people dislike Sunday as what some have referred to as the Christian Sabbath? Well, may I submit that, first of all, because we have a wrong attitude toward the Lord. I was born wanting my way. (laughs) I was born wanting what I want, when I want, how I want it. And modern man is totally self-centered instead of God-centered. My flesh, my lower nature hates restrictions, hates laws, hates regulation, hates rules of any kind. I want to express myself the way I please. So I frankly don't want to recognize a God of heaven as being sovereign over me. But the God of heaven has the sovereign right to designate any day he chooses to be kept as a holy day. In fact, he has the sovereign right. To have me sleep upside down every third Tuesday. Or to stand on my head every third Monday. Also, I have a wrong attitude towards Scripture. If I make my decisions based on my human reasoning, I will automatically delete the Lord's Day. Most most of us are familiar with the word delete these days. If I use human reasoning with Scripture, I could be a five-point Calvinist. Or a Wesleyan-Arminian, one of those two extremes. The real question about the Lord's Day, therefore, is what does the Bible teach? We also have a wrong attitude toward the law of God. Many say, well, we're not under law. Don't you put me under law, preacher. I'm under grace. We're in the age of grace. This is the church age. Don't you put me under law. Christ is the end of the law well i understand some of what you're saying but please hear me out do you realize that there are several types of law in the bible and i need to ask myself what is the role of the law for mankind what is the relationship between law and grace let's take a look at god's law and let's look at its purpose what's the purpose of god's law just to make us miserable right You talk to the average youngster, yeah, moms and dads and preachers, they lay awake nights dreaming of rules to rob me of life's happiness. (laughs) Children come to our ministry convinced that their parents are their enemies, they're standing in the way of my happiness or a preacher, or a counselor, or a teacher, whoever constitutes God's ordained authority in their life, you're, you're standing in the way of what I want, therefore you're my enemy. Well, we have that kind of an attitude toward the Lord. 1 John 4, 8 puts it this way. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. God is love. His motivation is love. In all that He does, His motivation is love, including His law. Behind every one of the Ten Commandments is a loving God who wants to help me, protect me, bless me, guide me, and strengthen me. And when a parent says no, or when a parent or a pastor puts rules, regulations, and structure in the life of a child, it's because they love them. We once had, before we could afford a baptistry, we had a cattle tank there out in the lawn where we did baptisms. And for those of you who've been at our ministry, you know we're right on a very busy road out in the county there where people, now there's a speed limit, but boy, they just used to tear down that thing. And we were baptizing this one woman and her children were there who were very naughty children. it charitably and i heard this mother after she had been baptized say don't go toward that road and this child acted like the mother hadn't said a word just kept going in fact now started running stop running faster and a car was speeding down that road and there was a head so the car couldn't have seen the child and had not another older young person been faster than that child that child would have been killed That mother hadn't taught the child to obey because she didn't want to make things uncomfortable for her child, that kind of modern thinking. But a parent who loves their child realizes, if I don't teach my child to obey, they'll be a monster. They'll end up in a prison somewhere. They'll be a Canaanite. So God, just like a loving parent, puts rules on us, because he loves us his motivation is love what's best for us and our future by the way kids why do parents put rules on you so that you put rules on yourself one of these days you put rules on yourself it's called temperance you learn self-control Now, my god knows everything I'm finite he's infinite he knows everything I only know a tiny speck of what he knows he completely knows my needs he knows what's best for me. I don't always know what's best for me. In fact, I do a lot of stupid stuff. I eat stuff that looks good and tastes good, but it's going to kill me. I do all kinds of stuff that's not good for me, but, but the Lord knows what's good for me and what's best for me. And he does everything that's in my best interest. You know, what do we do? We, I hope no one here, we, we smoke. hope that doesn't include anyone here. You know, we, we chew tobacco, we do all these, take drugs, we, we, we are, people are immoral, we don't get enough rest, we overeat, we sin in many spiritual and sinful ways and fleshly ways. But unlike us, God wants to completely meet our needs in every way, even that which we may not like or appreciate. All food is not ice cream. Some people can't stand certain foods. Now, I've gotten to where I just about eat anything in sight. But, you know, we don't need just ice cream. We need vegetables. We need sprouts. We need broccoli. We need Brussels sprouts. We need cabbage, tomatoes. We need all kinds of good things. We need fiber. We need activities. Not all activities are fun. My my dad thought nothing of getting us up before the chickens. I didn't think much of it either to milk those cows we had cows to milk get out of that boy get out of that bed bed boys got those cows to milk and boy he'd better hear two feet on the floor or he'd be up there and boy then things would fly that wasn't fun but it taught us valuable lessons all activities are not fun but we need exercise we need balance we need structure Not all spiritual duties are delightful. I can come in the morning, open my Bible, and I have a cold heart. And I have to warm my heart. But as I read and as I exercise that duty, then my heart warms. And I get to where I I ought to be. But we need prayer, we need Bible study, we need preaching, we need the Lord's Day. But we will do stupid things. Just because of our lower nature, we had a doctor come and talk to us one day there at the ministry. He said, "I'll never forget this." He said, "If you lined up every mammal on planet Earth—not, of course, to him—that included human beings—and you put them at the end of this long corridor. At the end of that corridor, you put ice cream bars, Twinkies, potato chips." French fries, Big Macs, quarter pounders, melted in cheese. And on the other side, you put sprouts, carrot sticks, lettuce, beets, that kind of stuff. And then you line all these mammals up and said, all right, go get what you, whatever you want. Every mammal but two would head for the vegetables. Only two mammals would head for the junk food. One is the Norway rat,
1: and one is a human being.
0: We're in blessed company, aren't we? The human being and the Norway rat would head right for the junk food. That's how we think. That that's, we, we go according to our feelings, our desires, instead of what's good for us. But our God is good, and His gifts are perfect and good. He only gives good and perfect gifts. Romans chapter 7, verse 16 says, The law is good. Amen. Don't let someone try to tell you that God's law is bad, because it's good. It comes from a loving Heavenly Father god unlike our legislatures and our congresses and our city councils and the united nations and religious councils and all these bodies all of those people distort things they they damage things they're defiant but god only makes perfect all-wise good and beneficial laws but city councils and congresses make laws that are stupid we may not always understand a law but I know if it's from God, it's a good law. Right. Children don't understand rules and restraints, especially in their formative years. When they're, they're young and plastic and formative years, they don't understand. And that's why you don't reason with them. Remember, you don't reason with a little child. Remember, they have this congenital abnormality. Every child has it. They're born with their ears temporarily attached to their bottom. Now, praise God, they eventually gravitate to their head, but that's how they hear you at first. And if you just remember that, you'll go a long ways in helping them. Now, they might not understand that law, and they probably won't. And we don't understand sometimes when God gives us a law, but we know from its source that it's a good law. So, praise God for the self-control that that teaches us, that self-discipline that we learned. And children, when they get older, appreciate what they were made to do. I don't know about you, but I had a teacher in the 5th and 6th grade that was mean as a snake. I mean, that woman, I, I didn't think I would survive that classroom. And she was all, and boy, I mean, in those days, they took stuff and hit you with it. They didn't say, oh, no, you shouldn't do stuff like that. That's not their approach. They took a ruler or yardstick or whatever came to hand and, and let you have it. And I didn't think I'd survive. But, you know, when I got to be an adult, I praised God for that woman. I learned some character in that classroom. Well, why should we keep God's law? Many keep laws because of the penalties. I mean, let's just be honest. Why do some of us fill out an honest tax form? Because we don't want to go to jail. (laughs) Because we know we might be audited or some crazy thing. Why do I drive down the road and why don't I tear down the road as fast as I can go? Unless I'm in Montana. Because I'll get a ticket. If I don't drive properly, I'll get a ticket. Some people pay their tithe for that reason. I don't want God to curse me. So I'll I'll, I'll give God his tithe. But some graduate to a higher level. And we keep law for conscience sake. I don't want a guilty conscience. My parents always told me that was wrong, so I'm not going to do it, because I would feel bad if I did that. My mom and my dad told me that's not right. I'm not going to do that. Mom and dad said that's not right. I'm not going to do it. And believers ought to keep God's law out of love. Not because we fear a, a tyrannical, capricious God that's going to zap me the minute I step out of line, but because I love Him. And I want to please Him. And I know He loves me. Let's go to Matthew chapter 22, please. Matthew chapter 22. Beginning at verse 37, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. If you want a distillation, a condensation of God's moral law, here it is. You've just read it. If you want to distill the Ten Commandments, here, you've just read it right here. So if I love God and I love my neighbor, I'm going to keep God's moral law, or as you call it, or I call it the Ten Commandments, if I love my neighbor, I'm not going to steal his property when he's not home. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to covet his property. I'm not going to commit adultery with his wife. I'm not going to take advantage of him. Because I love him. Romans 13 and verse 10, the Bible says, Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And love is the fulfilling of the law. So God's law is formulated from a heart of love. And it's fulfilled from a heart of love. Therefore, I may not understand why this benefits me. I might not understand why God's law benefits me in a social way or a physical way or a spiritual way or, or even as you said it before, Pastor, from our nation's perspective. But by faith, I know it was given by God's love For my blessing, my benefit, and it's in my best interest. It's in the best interest of my family. It's the best interest of my church and my country. In my love for God and man, I will obey this law. And if I do something out of love, it's no longer a burden. The story is told of a young man who was carrying another young man on his back. He looked pretty tired, but he didn't seem to be upset about it. Well, you look tired. Well, I am kind of tired. Aren't you sick of carrying him? Well, no. No, I'm not tired of that. He's my brother. I'm not tired of carrying my brother. I love my brother. I'll carry him as long as I can. So in my love for God and love for man, I will obey that law. It's not a burden. It's not a heavy weight. It's not chains. Allow these young hearts that come to our ministry have somewhere along the line gotten this idea that their faith is chains. They they see their faith as a bunch of do's and don'ts. This long list of rules. And may I say, whether you're young or old here tonight, I I feel sorry for you if that's the level at which you're serving God. Because our relationship with Him ought to be based on Love. And when I love him, it's no longer going to be rules and do's and don'ts, a bunch of chains. It'll be because I love him. That makes my yoke easy and my burden light. I said a moment ago that there's different types of law. Specifically, the Bible talks about three. There's civil law. There's ceremonial law. And there's moral law. The first two that I mentioned, civil and ceremonial, were temporary. But the last is permanent. The first two fit into certain dispensations of God's timetable for mankind. But the last, moral law, transcends all dispensations. The civil law was given to Israel as a legal system for Israel as a nation, as a people. And again, it was loving, it was was very practical, it was very wise, it wasn't meant to hurt or irritate or get their goat. It was necessarily binding on others, excuse me, I said that wrong, it wasn't necessarily binding on others or other cultures or other settings, although... Parts of that law were very wise, very practical, very wise for people to follow. In fact, go to Leviticus chapter 19, if you would, just show you an example of this. Back to our Pentateuch, Leviticus chapter 19. I won't read all of this, but if you could just skim through this with me, I'll show you what I'm getting at. In Leviticus 19 and verse 14, kindness was promoted among the Israelites. Kindness wasn't just a New Testament concept. That's part of God's moral law and a civil law. Leviticus 19.13 talks about being honest in my commerce. Don't have different weights. Don't cheat your neighbor. In verse 20, he talks about sexual purity. In, In verse 23, he talks about sound husbandry. Verses 26, 27, and 28. The avoidance of paganism. Verse 29. Honoring one's family. Verse 30. Sabbath keeping. Verse 32. Respect for the elderly. Rise up before the hoary head. Around our houses you ought to hear strange stuff like, Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. No, sir. I'd be glad to. I love you. Weird stuff like that. Now some of these would not apply to us today. For example, Exodus 21, verses 7 through 11. There's civil law telling you as an Israelite about the protection of a slave girl. Not too many of us have to worry about that. Deuteronomy 21, verses 10 through 14 how to treat a girl who's a prisoner of war. In Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 through 17, how to treat the hated wife. Some Israelites would have more than one wife, and they would treat one wife wrong. And God said, that's despicable. You treat the hated wife equally. Numbers chapter 5, verses 11 through 31, a rather long passage if you husbands here get jealous of your wife, you don't come up to Pastor Harvey and ask him to distill some of the sediment out of the carpet and make up a little potion and have her drink it to see if she's guilty of adultery. There was a trial or an ordeal of jealousy in which they would get the stuff right off the, the floor. You know, can you imagine what that excrement from animals and blood and gore and God knows what else? And they would make a tea out of this, and this woman would drink that stuff. This almost makes you gag just to think about it. If she was innocent, nothing would happen. If she was guilty, watch out. That was civil law for the nation of Israel. We don't do those things right now in this dispensation. Well, what about ceremonial law? That was a system of shadows and types and figures, beautiful types and figures. This was concerned with the tabernacle and and the priesthood and the the sacrificial system. And and this system of law contained and taught and looked forward to religious truth that would be expounded in beauty in the New Testament. But it it also was temporary. Why? Because it was abolished at the cross. Colossians 2 and verse 14 says, Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances... That was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to his cross that system contained the three main there's more than three but the three main sacrifices were the burnt offering the peace offering and the sin offering it also contained the priesthood but it was temporary because it looked forward to the temporary look forward to the sacrifice of our savior on the cross and once that took place it was all over but then the third law The moral law. That law that transcends all dispensations. That law that is still in effect as we speak. That's universal. It's perpetual. It knows no boundaries. It's universally binding on all people for all time. Why? Because it's it's an expression of God's holy character. It's expressed permanently in what we call the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments. Civil and ceremonial laws were revealed immediately through Moses. That's how the nation of Israel got them through the disposition of angels. They helped out. And notice how those laws were given. I don't know if you've thought about this, but they were written on parchment symbolizing their transient or temporary nature. But by way of contrast, the moral law, the Ten Commandments, was not written on parchment, my friend. It was written in stone. Parchment disintegrates. Even in the dry, arid climate of Palestine, it disintegrates eventually. Those those parchments they found at at Qumran and those caves there by the Dead Sea are in such delicate, fragile condition, they they don't even dare touch them or they'll disintegrate. Even though they're so old, they, they still can look at, they found the complete book of Isaiah. But the moral law was written on tables of stone. And my friend, God doesn't do things serendipitously or fortuitously, He did that on purpose. To indicate the permanence of this law. And those laws were written by the finger of God Himself. They weren't given by an intermediary named Moses or anyone else. Why? Because this is my law that I want to last beyond dispensations. And they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Very special place. Gives the special nature of the Decalogue. Its holiness was emphasized. It it was to be remembered. It sprang out of the character of God. And my friend, may I say this as charitably as I can. If you lay aside one of the Ten Commandments, what's to keep you from laying aside all of them? Would that not be something like those today who believe they can take the last several verses of the Gospel of Mark and cut them out of our Bible because they're not the most recent or the, most, uh, the oldest manuscripts and that, that kind of reasoning? Man can come up with all kinds of reasons to do what he wants, but may I just say, when you, you start tampering with God's moral law, What's to keep anyone from tampering with the rest of them? Those laws are not just Jewish laws. The Sabbath was ordained 2,000 years before Abraham. The Sabbath wasn't given at Mount Sinai. It was given at creation. Well, Why does the Lord's Day still stand? Well, because it began at creation. It was a creation ordinance. This wasn't given at Mount Sinai. This was given before the civil law. It was given before ceremonial law. Let's go back there. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, please. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the hosts of them. Creation is done. And on the seventh day... God ended His work which He had made, and He rested, that word from which we get the word Sabbath or Shabbat, on the seventh day from all His work which He had made, and God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it He had rested from all His work which God created and made. So this Sabbath was ordained at the beginning of human history, at the end of the creation week. Why? Because God knew what man needed. This wasn't just happenstance. This wasn't something that he did accidentally. Oops, what did I do that for? I do that. (laughs) God doesn't do that. Man was made on the sixth day. Therefore, his first full day on planet Earth was a Sabbath day. God didn't need a Sabbath. Sabbath. When God got done creating everything, he wasn't, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> God doesn't get tired. He wasn't perspiring. Well, I was perspiring several times today, oh my soul. Let's see how you Texas people take this. But he didn't need a Sabbath. He's powerful, he's all powerful. He gave the Sabbath as an example, as a blessing for man. The Sabbath was made for man. Mark, chapter 2, verse 27. And he said unto them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So God created a man, and then a rest day that man would need, and does need. He still needs it today. And may I say, we're not as peppy as they were. They lived all, (laughs) Methuselah lived almost a thousand years, for crying out loud. When the Israelites were on their way to Mount Sinai, in Exodus chapter 16, God said this to them. Now, they're marching toward the mountain. They haven't got there yet. How long refuse ye to keep my commandments and my laws? That's a reference to the Sabbath. They were already having a problem with it. Exodus 16, verses 22 through 29. There was a Sabbath law of creation before Mount Sinai, as I've said a number of times. But it was ordered at Sinai. The Ten Commandments, including the Sabbath, were given at Sinai, but were actually around before them. Lamech, in Genesis chapter 4, knew that murder was wrong. In Genesis 27, Jacob knew that stealing was wrong. That old poacher, that heel grabber, that liar, that trespasser... I like Jacob. You know why? Because I identify with him. If God orbusts a scoundrel like him, I have hope. Genesis 39 Joseph knew adultery was wrong. The Israelites knew it was wrong to not observe the Sabbath. Adam knew it was wrong to not observe the Sabbath. Well, who should keep it? Everybody. Young, old, male, female. If you have a team of horses, your team of horses should keep it. If they're used to do work. If you have animals, if you have a, a chihuahua that runs a, a, a little wheel to run electricity for you, he needs to rest on the Sabbath. <laughs> Every beast of burden had to rest on the seventh day. I don't know if you notice as you read the Decalogue, but the, the, the fourth commandment, the, the Sabbath commandment, is the longest of the ten. The most detailed. Well, now how do we do this? If I'm to do this, how do I do it? Well, you, you rest from normal activities. The very word Sabbath comes from a word which means rest. Rest. No, it's not, this isn't rocket science, it's Rest. You ever heard of a good old Baptist nap? You are observing the Sabbath when you take a good old Baptist nap. It's a rest. to keep it holy. You not only rest, but you keep that day holy. Devote that day to the Lord, worshiping Him, serving Him, keeping it for the purpose that God ordained it. It's not my day to do my pleasure. It's His day. So every week, these Jews had a reminder that God was their creator. Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is. So every seven days, the Jews were reminded, God created us. Secondarily, they were also reminded that God was their redeemer. Exodus 22, I'm the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. So the Sabbath, in addition to giving them rest, allowing them to worship Him have holy activities, they were reminded that God was their Creator and their Redeemer. And there's repeated references to Sabbath-keeping in the Old Testament. And all of these references emphasize that obedience to doing this brings blessing. Disobedience brings a curse. Do you think it was just a fortuitous concurrence of circumstances that the Israelites were in captivity for 70 years? Why? Because they refused to obey the Sabbath for 70 years. So they were in captivity for 70 years. Disobedience brings punishment and a curse. Jeremiah 25, verses 11 and 12, tells us about that. They weren't observing the law, including the Sabbath. So they were in captivity. And so the land would observe its Sabbaths. Our Lord Jesus Christ commanded the Sabbath. First of all, by His example. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. The Bible says this, As His custom was, this was a habit for Him, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Synagogue, that's the place of meeting. The believers on the Lord's day go to the place of meeting. But not only by that, but by his deeds. Our Lord attended Sabbath worship. He healed people on the Lord's day, or on the Sabbath day for him. Mark chapter 2, verse 23. He healed that man with a withered hand in the synagogue. He walked quietly with his disciples through cornfields. But he also observed it by his words. Mark 2 28 Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. The Lord was the Lord of the Sabbath. It's his day, not man's day. The Sabbath was given for the benefit of all. It wasn't only made for Jews, it was made for the race, it was made for mankind. It's not just for one time, it's for all time. Since man was, since this was made for the people, and not vice versa, these people can't determine how they're going to use it as they please. Unless they want to pay the price of His displeasure, and His possible curse. This day would then cease to be the Sabbath, and would be a day defined by a man, whatever He pleases to do on that day, however He defines it. The Pharisees... <laughs> had added incredible burdens to the Sabbath. You could only walk so many steps. You could only do certain things. If uh, You couldn't swat a mosquito unless it bit you. Or some or crazy laws they had. But far from dismissing this law, the Lord Jesus ties His disciples even more tightly to it. Go please to Matthew chapter 5. I believe we read this today here in this auditorium. Matthew chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Look please at verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. Now that could not have been the civil law he's referring to there. Because that was ended. It could not have meant the ceremonial law because that was ended. Although he did fulfill the ceremonial law. This is a recognition of the moral law. He recognizes the Ten Commandments as a universal standard of right and wrong. Mark 10, verse 19, he says, Thou knowest the commandments. And he began to quote the Ten Commandments as the way a righteous man ought to live. He's talking there to the rich young ruler. Well, what day is this? Exodus 20, verses 8 through 10, the seventh day. The seventh day is the Sabbath. Now, the fourth commandment does not state that the seventh day is the Sabbath, but that the seventh in relation to six days of labor. This commandment doesn't specify which day we should keep as the Sabbath, just that we keep every seventh day. The Christian Sabbath, more appropriately, biblically called the Lord's Day for us, is Sunday. And that's just as much of a reality as the seventh day was to the Jew. There's nothing in the law telling us which day to count. Well, why this shift from the Jewish Shabbat, the, the seventh day, the Saturday? You know, if you lived in Israel, you, you have three days off. The Muslims observe Friday, the Jews observe Saturday, the Christians observe Sunday. Can't imagine being a boss over there and hiring labor, oh my soul. <laughs> what if you had people in all faith, all three of those faiths, oh my goodness. Well, why, do you, why was that shift made from Saturday to Sunday? Well, think about this. The Lord rose on Sunday, the first day of the week. The Lord could have resurrected our Savior on, on the Sabbath day, but He didn't. He resurrected Him on Sunday. He wanted to deliver Christianity from Judaism. Judaism. There was, there was going to be many problems along that line, and he wrote the whole epistle to Galatians to, to help with that. One of the early church fathers, a man named Ignatius, trained by the Apostle John, he lived in the first century, he was one of the early church fathers, he said, let us no more sabotage, but let us keep the Lord's day on which our Lord arose. I believe that's the teaching of the New Testament. All four gospels mention this. His resurrection signified the completion of redemption. The original and Jewish Sabbath commemorated the completion of creation. But the Christian Sabbath, or I'm, I call it the Lord's Day, commemorates the completion of salvation. For the Jew is creation. For us it's salvation. Our Lord's first appearance to a gathered group of believers was on Saturday? No. It was on Sunday. John chapter 20, verse 19, in the upper room. Then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, came Jesus. He then expounded the Lord's word to the Lord's people on the Lord's day. His second appearance to these disciples was on the next Sunday. John chapter 20 verse 26 and after eight days again his disciples were within and Thomas with them then came Jesus the doors being shut and stood in the midst and said peace be unto you the Holy Spirit descended on the disciples on Pentecost a Sunday the Lord's day Jesus said he would send his Holy Spirit he sent him on Sunday the early Christians meant for worship Those 3,000 that were saved on Pentecost were probably almost 100% Jewish. But they gathered on the first day of the week instead of Sabbath, instead of the Jewish Sabbath. Paul arrived on Monday in Troas, but remained until the first day so he could preach to the disciples on Sunday. They broke bread on that day, and Paul preached to them, Acts chapter 20, verses 5 through 12. Paul told the Corinthians to arrange their giving on the first day of the week. 1 Corinthians 6.12 Why would he do such a thing? Because that's the day they work and it'd be hard for him to do it? No. That's the day they met for worship. Sunday, the first day of the week, the Lord's day. He knew they met on Sunday. The Lord's final revelation to the church was on Sunday. The last book of our New Testament, the Apocalypse, the Revelation. Revelation 1, verse 10, John was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Well, how do we keep that day? Beloved, if I dare say that. (laughs) Friends, (laughs) I'm not going to stand up here and make a list for you. but may I give you some principles that I try to observe because I'm a firm believer in soul liberty as a Baptist believer I believe all of us are going to stand on the judgment bar of God and we're going to individually give an account of our stewardship and on that day it's not going to make much difference what the pastor did or the deacon did or someone else did You and I are going to give an individual accounting of our stewardship on that day. Including how we have or have not observed the Lord's day. So I'm not going to give you this long list of rules. But I'd like to give you some broad principles for you to consider. So that before your your God and your conscience, you work this out before the Lord. And I would suggest three basic principles. That on the Lord's day you do those things of necessity... Mercy and ministry. Necessity, mercy, and ministry. Necessity. The disciples were walking through this field of corn, field of small grain, and as they walked through the fields, they were plucking off the corn and eating it because they were starving, they were hungry. So unless they were fasting, they could eat. They They could do that work that was necessary to strip that stuff off of there and eat it. So, the Lord taught us that you can, do, you can do that kind of work on the Lord's day. was necessary. The Lord taught us we can pull our ox out of the ditch. If you have a herd of dairy cows, you better milk your cows or she'll be cross eyed by Monday, I'll tell you that. <laughs> you can feed your animals, but don't plow with your animals. That's not necessary. You can put wood in the stove you could use your water and your electric is it necessary I don't think it's necessary for me to shop on the Lord's day I've got six days in which to shop because when I do that I'm keeping someone else out of church I don't think it's necessary for me to eat out on the Lord's day I'm keeping someone else out of church I have six days in which I can do that I better not take a trip to the shore the world goes to the beach believers go to the shore I have six days in which I can do that. I better not go fishing on the Lord's day. That's not necessary. I have six days in which I can do that. What about mercy? The Lord on this day healed, on the Sabbath in that case, healed the man with the withered hand. And these Pharisees and scribes were at livid with rage. How dare you desecrate our Sabbath? That's how distorted they were in their thinking. But they lost the basic message of God's mercy and love for sinners. So if you're a policeman, you better work on the Lord's Day. I hope you do. We live in a world of sin. I hope you're out there trying to catch every criminal you can catch. If you're a doctor or a nurse, you probably might have to to work on the Lord's Day. If you're a pastor, (laughs) you better work on the Lord's Day. It's a matter of Christian duty. You know, the priests labored on the Sabbath and were guiltless. They circumcised on the Sabbath and were guiltless. It was necessary. It was mercy. Pastors, Sunday school teachers, bus workers, all of that's acceptable. That's Christian duty. What of jobs, which require Sunday work? Now you're getting into a problem, aren't we? servants and employees should be granted a Sabbath of rest they ought to have a Sabbath of rest and and you know here it gets pretty sticky You know I I don't know how to answer some of these questions but ideally you ought to have a Sabbath of rest That, that Lord's day ought to be a day of rest and I hope by God's grace and mercy you can find a job where you're not required to work on the Lord's day that's absolutely ideal that you can have that day off in which you can join with other believers and get encouragement from the word of God and and being with other believers early Christian slaves had no Sundays off they observed it as much as they could that's probably why a lot of the Christian meetings were very late at night when their masters were sleeping most of the biblical world the slaves outnumbered the free men in the the biblical world did you know that? That there are millions of slaves but well, what did the Lord Jesus do on Sunday? John chapter 20 and verse 13. They said unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? He comforted a weeping woman in bereavement. You can do that on the Lord's day. You can comfort people. He went on a fellowship walk with two discouraged disciples. Those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. A lot more steps, by the way, than the Pharisees allowed. <laughs> He had an informed Bible study with them. He visited their home. He shared a meal with them. He had prayer with them. He sent messages to friends in other places. Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go unto Galilee, and there they shall see me. He had a private talk with a backslider named Peter. He met and gathered with believers. He announced peace. He promoted joy. He dispelled doubts. He explained scripture. He told them what to do. It sounds like a New Testament church. Why isn't the Lord's Day just for the Jews? Well, because it was a creation ordinance before the family was created, before the church was created, before the sons of Jacob were a nation or any other group. The Sabbath is for mankind, not just one nation it was given to Adam as a representative of the human race. Pastor Thompson and I were talking about the French Revolution and the Great Awakening in the 1700s in our country were it not for the preaching of the Wesleys and the Whitfields we would have gone through the excesses of the French Revolution and during the French Revolution equality, fraternity, liberty while they were slaughtering people by the gazillions with a guillotine. they in their man's reasoning and man's wisdom hating our God, hating the Word of God, hating God's principles. Of, we're not going to have this Sabbath business. We're going to have you rest every tenth day. We'll show God. Well, that didn't last long. They had to go back to one rest day and seven. Why? Because God knows He knows what He's doing. He made us. He knows the rest we need. We need one rest day and seven. Amen. Mankind needs that. God made him that way. <clears throat> and if Adam needed it in a perfect world, how much more do we need it today with all the pressures we are under today? Well, didn't the Lord Jesus criticize the Sabbath? No, no. He said He was the Lord of the Sabbath. He did criticize what the Pharisees had done with the Sabbath. Yes, he did that. They added multitudes of these rules and regulations which were entirely out of their own reasoning. They prohibited 39 forms of labor with all kinds of enormous detail. Like I told you before, it was wrong to kill a flea unless the flea was biting you. If the flea was biting you, then then, okay, then, then you can kill it. You can't eat an egg if that egg was laid by that hen on the Sabbath. That's a Sabbath egg. Don't you eat that egg. The Lord Jesus spoke 11 times on this subject, and each time he corrected all this superstition, all these additions, he never denied its necessity, nor did he deny its necessity, or its holiness, rather. He he didn't abolish the Sabbath any more than a man abolishes his car when he's cleaning off the road tar. He just cleans it up. Well, wasn't it a a Roman pope that brought in Sunday? No. It was declared a public holiday in 321 A.D. under Constantine, and he was a Roman emperor. But believers had already been observing Sunday instead of Saturday for 300 years prior to that date. So don't blame that on Constantine. Well, I thought every day was to be kept holy. Well, you're very admirable. Yes, every day is holy in a sense, not just Sunday, but the Lord's day is unique. It's one of a kind, it's that creation pattern, one in seven. Keeping the Lord's day doesn't sound like a day of joy and gladness. Well, if that's your attitude, if that's your thinking, if that's your conclusion, may I say that the problem is with your thinking. Our culture, our country, it's not the fault of the day. The key is first of all being saved, because if you're not saved, this is going to seem like nonsense to you. And then if you're saved, you need to be an obedient believer, because if you're not, then it's going to be chains to you, rules, regulations but once you're an obedient believer then you want to love him and please him and you'll want to keep this day why because the Lord's day is a foretaste of heaven if you enjoy the Lord's day you'll enjoy heaven the Lord's day is a drag and I suppose we better go well the problem's with your heart you have a religion of convenience you have a problem with a lack of love can I shop on Sunday? Well, my principle is not to do so. If at all possible, I try to get my gasoline on Saturday. I try to get my groceries on Saturday or any other day of that week because it makes others work. It hinders my testimony and encourages others to shop. Well, as we analyze what we've covered here tonight, my friends, may I say that we're, we're either keeping or profaning the Lord's Day. Go with me, please, to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah 58, beginning, please, at verse 13. If thou turn away thy foot from the Sabbath, from doing thy pleasure, there's the key, thy pleasure, on my holy day, And call the Sabbath a delight, the holy of the Lord, honorable, and shalt honor him, not doing thine own ways, nor finding thine own pleasure, nor speaking thine own words, then... Here's the blessing. Here's the promise. Thou shalt delight thyself in the Lord, and I will cause thee to ride upon the high places of the earth and feed thee with the heritage of Jacob thy father, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. If I were you, I'd put away the golf clubs or whatever else, the bicycles, the tennis rackets. Be present for every service in the Lord's house. Spend time in scriptures and prayer. Do deeds of mercy. Visit sick people. Visit those who need to be visited. Try to lead people to Christ. That's that's allowable on the Lord's day. It's a part of doing justice and judgment. Not my own pleasure, but God's. That can be a delight, not a burden, because remember, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. And the more pleasure you find in God, the more pleasure you'll find in doing this on Sunday. In 1831, a Frenchman by the name of Alexis de Tocqueville came to America from France to observe our very unique country, because our country already had quite a reputation in the world. Quote, She's great because she's good he talked in his book about on how the Lord's Day everyone stopped working. No one worked. Not even the lost reprobate would work on the Lord's Day. And all across America he said I saw people heading toward their church building. The French couldn't understand this. When the French soldiers came to help our forces in the seventeen hundreds they thought Americans were religious fanatics. He was amazed. And when our nation did observe the Lord's day, we were a great nation. We were a creditor nation. Now we're a debtor nation. We've fallen from that high position. But you can personally have blessing. God's people can live in a wicked nation and have personal blessing you can observe that Lord's Day as, as an individual and as a family and as a church. I hope every sports team that plays on the Lord's Day loses. And they get all these people up there and give their testimonies about their, their game and, and the, the, some of these people name the name of the Lord, you know. But they play their games on the Lord's Day. For a filthy lucre they pollute the Lord's Day and encourage others to do so. Some of you might remember a baseball pitcher by the name of Sandy Koufax. He refused to pitch on Saturday. He was a Jew. He he had more respect for his Jewish Sabbath than Christians do for the Lord's Day. Eric Lydell, that famous runner, refused to run in the Olympics on Sunday, and I say, good for him. You desecrate and ignore and pollute the Lord's Day at your own peril. The Lord felt so strongly about this under law that when an Israelite went out and gathered sticks he was executed. It's the Lord's day, not my day. It's His day. Now we live in a free country. (laughs) I cannot legislate what you do, nor can your pastor's. But I challenge you by the grace of God to make this the Lord's day in your life, not your day. It's not Sunday, that that day comes from ancient heathenism, that's the Romans' worship of the sun. It's not the Sabbath, that's Jewish. The Bible calls this the Lord's day, the first day of the week.